As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Western Civ, episode 87, Into Asia. Just outside the small French city of Clermont, on a late November morning in 1095, Pope Urban II delivered a sermon which would change the course of history. In the coming months, the message that he delivered reverberated across Europe. It's a momentous speech, but it's not a lengthy one. To that extent, it's a little bit like the Gettysburg Address, something that we feel like, based off of its historical importance, should be longer, but just isn't. However, there's a big difference between the Gettysburg Address and the Sermon at Clermont. The Sermon started a historical epoch. The Gettysburg Address simply memorialized a battle that had already happened. That's why I think it's even more interesting that the Sermon of Clermont is as short as it is. Because the impact that it's going to have on East-West relations, to name just one of the many impacts that it has, is just so breathtaking. Now, because it's so short, I'm actually going to repeat it right now in its entirety. Pope Urban told the assembled crowd, quote, O race of Franks, race from across the mountains, race chosen and beloved by God, as shines forth in very many of your works, set apart from all nations by the situation of your country, as well as by your Catholic faith and the honor of your holy church. To you our discourse is addressed, and for you our exhortation is intended. We wish you to know what a grievous cause has led us to your country, what peril threatening you and all the faithful has brought us. 
From the confines of Jerusalem and the city of Constantinople, a horrible tale has gone forth and very frequently has been brought to our ears. Namely, that a race from the kingdom of Persians, an accursed race, a race utterly alienated from God, a generation forsooth, which has not directed its heart and has not entrusted its spirit to God, has invaded the lands of those Christians and has depopulated them by the sword, pillage, and fire. It has led away a part of captives into its own country, and a part of it has been destroyed by cruel tortures. It has either entirely destroyed the churches of God or appropriated them for the rites of its own religion. They destroy the altars after having defiled them with their uncleanness. They circumcise the Christians, and the blood of the circumcision they either spread upon the altars or pour into the vases of the baptismal font. When they wish to torture people by a base death, they perforate their navels, and dragging forth the extremity of the intestines, bind it to a stake. Then, with flogging, they lead the victim around until the viscera, having gushed forth from the victim, falls prostrate on the ground. Others they bind to a post and pierce with arrows. Others they compel to extend their necks and then, attacking them with naked swords, attempt to cut through the neck with a single blow. What shall I say of the abominable rape of the women? To speak of it is worse than to be silent. The kingdom of the Greeks is now dismembered by them and deprived of territory so vast in extent that it cannot be traversed in a march of two months. On whom, therefore, is the labor of avenging these wrongs and of recovering this territory incumbent, if not upon you? You, upon whom, above all other nations, God has conferred remarkable ability of glory and arms, great courage, bodily activity, and the strength to humble the hairy scalp of those who resist you. Let the deeds of your ancestors move you and incite your minds to manly achievements, the glory and the greatness of King Charles the Great, and of his son Louis, and of other kings who have destroyed the kingdoms of the pagans, and have extended in these lands the territory of the Holy Church. Let the holy sepulchre of our Lord our Savior, which is possessed by unclean nations, especially incite you and the holy places which are now treated with ignominy and irreverently polluted with their filthiness. Oh, most valiant soldiers and descendants of invisible ancestors, be not degenerate, but recall the valor of your progenitors. But if you are hindered by love of children, parents, and wives, remember what the Lord says in the gospel. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Every one that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and shall inherit an everlasting life. Let none of your possessions detain you, no solicitude for your family affairs, since this land which you inhabit, shut in on all sides by the seas and surrounded by the mountain peaks, is too narrow for your large population." nor does it abound in wealth, and it furnishes scarcely food enough for its cultivators. Hence, it is that you murder one another, that you wage war, that frequently you perish by mutual wounds. Let therefore hatred depart from among you, let your quarrels end, let war cease, and let all dissensions and controversies slumber. Enter upon the road to the holy sepulchre, wrest that land from the wicked race, and subject it to yourselves. 
That land which, as the scriptures say, floweth with milk and honey, was given by God into the possession of the children of Israel. Jerusalem is the navel of the world. The land is fruitful above all others, like another paradise of delights. This the Redeemer of the human race has made illustrious by his advent, his beautified by residence, has consecrated by suffering, has redeemed by death, has glorified by burial. This royal city, therefore situated at the center of the world, is now held captive by his enemies and is in subjection to those who do not know God, to the worship of the heathens. She seeks, therefore, and desires to be liberated, and does not cease to implore you to come to her aid. From you especially, she asks succor, because, as we have already said, God has conferred upon you above all nations great glory in arms. Accordingly, undertake this journey for the remission of your sins, with the assurance of the imperishable glory of the kingdom of heaven. It is the will of God. It is the willed of God. Most beloved brethren, today is manifest in you what the Lord says in the gospel. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Unless the Lord God had been present in your spirits, all of you would not have uttered the same cry. For although the cry is issued from numerous mouths, yet let the origin of the cry was one. Therefore I say to you that God, who implanted this in your breasts, has drawn it forth from you. Let this then be your war cry and combat, because this word is given to you by God. When an armed attack is made upon the enemy, let this one cry be raised by all the soldiers of God. It is the will of God. It is the will of God. And we do not command or advise that the old or feeble or those unfit for bearing arms undertake this journey. Nor ought women to be set out at all without their husbands or brothers or legal guardians. For such are more of a hindrance than aid, more of a burden than advantage. Let the rich aid the needy, and according to their wealth, let them take with them experienced soldiers. The priests and the clerks of any order are not to go without the consent of their bishop, for this journey would profit them nothing if they went without the permission of these. Also, it is not fitting that laymen should enter upon the pilgrimage without the blessing of their priests. Whoever, therefore, shall determine upon this holy pilgrimage, and shall make his vow to God to that effect, and shall offer himself to him as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, and unto God, shall wear the sign of the cross of the Lord on his forehead or on his breast. When, truly having fulfilled his vow, wishes to return, let him place the cross on his back between his shoulders." Such indeed, by the twofold action, will fulfill the precept of the Lord, as he commands in the gospel. He that taketh not his cross, and followeth after me, is not worthy of me. There are a few important and interesting takeaways, I think, from this speech. First and foremost of interest to me is that the idea that now, like right now, Western Christendom is under the threat from the Muslim forces. As I said in the last episode, Jerusalem has been in Muslim hands for about 500 years. And now Christendom is under threat? 
I fail to see the connection that Urban is trying to make. In actuality, Western Christendom was actually in a much better position right now than it had been even 50 years earlier. After all, the Normans had recently reconquered Sicily from the Arabs. And as we will see later on, the Christian kingdoms of Spain were already pushing back against the Moors of North Africa. The other point, in case you missed it, is that Pope Urban is clearly promising that anyone who chooses to go on crusade will have their earthly sins forgiven. Of course, there's nothing new to the idea in Christianity that you can seek forgiveness of your sins through penance, but the blanket approach that he takes is fairly new. And many of the men who would go on crusades had more sins than you could count. And these men would use at least the idea of forgiveness as their justification for going. Though, in reality, as we'll see, I think many of them probably could have cared less about Pope Urban's promise. But the logic behind the promise is important for us. Previously, there's always been a component in the forgiveness of sin of real and actual devotion. That is to say, the person had to actually want forgiveness by taking responsibility for and naming those specific actions. This is a lot more quid pro quo. Is saying that an action on earth with or without a contrite spirit will result in the forgiveness of all sins. I think this is important because this is the kind of logic that is eventually going to lead us to indulgences, and that's going to lead us to the Reformation. But now I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's get back to our story. Pope Urban was 60 years old when he declared holy war. He was the son of a northern French noble and became pope in 1088, at a time when the papacy was just getting over that massive struggle with the Holy Roman Empire that we covered in the last few episodes. After six years, he managed to reassert papal authority over many places where it had waned, including, don't forget, parts of northern Italy itself. Then, in March of 1095, a delegation arrived in Rome from the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantines. It was sent by the emperor, Alexios Comemos, who we started talking about last time. If you remember, Emperor Alexius was a good emperor, and his policies had started to rebuild what decades of mismanagement had destroyed. But the empire still faced real enemies, including, most critically, the Seljuk Turks, who still held on to much of Asia Minor. It was aid against the Turks that this delegation formally requested. In reality, most historians seem to believe that Alexios probably wanted a very small number of Frankish mercenaries. What he got instead was a tidal wave. So Urban, for his part, seems to have recognized immediately that this request was a huge opportunity for him. First, he could essentially reassert Western authority over the Eastern Church by being the one to save Constantinople in its time of need. Second, Urban looked around him and likely saw that the West was dominated by tiny pockets of warriors, and he, he alluded to this in the speech. If you remember, he talks about Franks putting down their arms that they've used against each other and turning them against a common enemy. The Castilians of France would have been well known to a pope 
who was French by nationality, especially someone from northern France. These men were excellent fighters, and as we know, they enjoyed fighting. It might help, Urban must have thought, to get some of these men, especially the younger ones without prospects, the heck out of France. Now, let me get one thing crystal clear right away. Urban's crusading sermon was not the product of divine inspiration. It was a carefully staged and planned event that was the direct result of a delegation from the East. Earlier that month, November 1095, Pope Urban had already met with 12 archbishops and about 80 bishops to discuss this plan. They debated the merits of the idea, and on November 27, 1095, hundreds of spectators gathered directly, they were gathered, by the way, to hear the sermon that I just read for you. This is important because those bishops were going to have to carry his message of crusade back to their home bishoprics, and then to the parish priests who had disseminated further. This was a time before mass media, so the hundreds at Clermont in November would have been the only people who actually heard the message, unless Urban had his men take his message out into the field. There would not even be a printing press for another several hundred years in Europe, so everything depended upon these 80 men who could distribute the ideas they were about to hear, and which we just heard. Now, in the sermon, Muslims were portrayed as basically inhuman savages. Of course, these accusations bore no relation to actual Muslim rule, and I want to make that clear instantly. A question I think that we do need to answer, though, is whether or not Urban himself believed his words or if they were just pure propaganda. I've not found anything decisive either way, but please let me know if you have something. What is certain, though, is that this idea of othering between the Christian West and Muslim East would continue in Western thought, perhaps until the present day. What further is certain is that the impact of the sermon had at the time was massive. According to sources, the speech left, quote, the eyes of some bathed with tears while others trembled. It was the effect he had hoped for, no doubt. Then, in clearly what was a pre-planned moment, Aethemar, the Bishop of Le Pew, stepped forward and formally committed to the cause. Clearly, this was planned in advance, because the next day, Bishop Aethemar was confirmed as papal legate, essentially the Pope's official representative on crusade, and he would remain so for the duration of the First Crusade. He would be taxed, probably most importantly, with kind of smoothing over any issues that would crop up with the Eastern Empire. And, my lord, are there going to be issues. The next day, another titan of the First Crusade agreed, Raymond of Toulouse. Raymond must have known in advance, or his acceptance did not arrive actually the next day. I mean, either way, because Toulouse and Clermont are about 375 miles apart. My guess, personally, is that he probably knew about the speech in advance. In order to hope for some success, Urban must have known that he would need a few big-name nobles to agree to the cause, and so probably ironed out Raymond's acceptance beforehand. Now, interestingly, nowhere in the sermon, as you noticed, did Urban use the term crusade. Urban himself would, in fact, never use the term crusade. In the beginning, the term pilgrimage would be used much more commonly to describe the journey that men would take to the Holy Land. 
It would not be until the late 12th century that the word crucicanatus, which translates roughly to one signed with the cross, starts to be used more commonly for the thousands who would slowly make their way to the Holy Land. The call for crusade went out across Europe, and that call would be answered. But not everybody who came to the party received an actual invitation. One of the most fascinating individuals to take part in the First Crusade was a guy named Peter the Hermit. Peter was a native of northern France and known for his outspoken and austere lifestyle. Yet, if he was not invited, he was sure as heck going to do his part. A contemporary wrote of Peter, quote, As if he had sounded a divine voice in the hearts of all, Peter the Hermit inspired the Franks from everywhere to gather together with their weapons, horses, and other military equipment. Unfortunately, the Franks he inspired were not the fighting men Urban had in mind. Peter managed to raise a force of around 15,000, but these were generally poor and unarmed individuals who simply trusted in the power of the Christian God to lead them to victory. Spoiler alert, it didn't work. In fact, the only quote-unquote victories this quote-unquote army was able to secure were the massacres of several Jewish settlements living along the Rhine as they made their way south. This is the so-called People's Crusade, which ends in disaster. We'll just cut to the quick. Those who were able to make their way to the Muslim territory were essentially just annihilated upon arrival. Peter, good news though, survived. He would have a continuing part to play once the actual First Crusade makes its way to the Middle East. So let's talk statistics. Somewhere between 60,000 to 100,000 Westerners ultimately joined the First Crusade. Only about 7,000 to 10,000 were knights. But this would still be an enormous amount of crack troops who were really strong fighters. If you faced off against an army from, let's just say, the United States today, and one out of every 10 soldiers was a Navy SEAL, you would be in trouble, to say the least. With the elite knights, there were about another 35 to 50,000 foot soldiers, and the balance of the number that I gave you earlier was made up of non-fighting combatants, including women and children. I saw an interesting quote to go along with these numbers by the historian Thomas Asperidge, and I think that this sums up the importance of these numbers. He wrote that not since the distant glories of the Roman Empire was a force of such size assembled, and it was about to be hurled against a divided Muslim East that had literally no warning or idea that it was coming. Unlike subsequent crusades, the first crusades did not have any kings who joined in the expedition. That being said, the best fighting princes and nobles of France, Germany, and the Low Countries came out in droves to support Pope Urban's call. And because of feudal ties, each of these men brought with them sizable military contingents of their own. That's how you get five foot soldiers for every knight, by the way. The most important secular lord to join the crusade was also the first, as we mentioned, Raymond of Toulouse. Raymond was in his mid-50s at the time of the First Crusade. He was wealthy and an excellent commander. 
He was also vain and proud to a fault, as we will see. Regardless, Raymond assumed command of the southern French armies. Now let me say right away, the First Crusade was going to deal with command issues from the word go. Because no king ultimately declares and goes along with it, there's no clear one guy in charge. Different lords were in command of essentially geographic forces, but trying to coordinate these different groups would prove a nightmare for the First Crusade. Honestly, given the lack of command structure or any at all, it's amazing how well the First Crusade went and probably speaks more to the situation in the Middle East than anything else. Again, I know I mentioned it just before, but please remember, the Muslims had no idea that these guys are showing up, and the Muslim world in the Middle East at the time is highly fractured. This would be like if the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor in 1941 and the United States did not respond for 400 years, but then sent an absolutely massive force out of nowhere. You can imagine the surprise of those living in the, in the target of that attack. I guess you could say that the second leader in command of the crusade, or at least the next likeliest candidate, would have been Bohemond of Toronto in southern Italy. Bohemond had fought alongside his father for years in Italy and in the Balkans and had an unequaled military pedigree. Frankly, if you were to look at overall military experience, the commander of the First Crusade probably should have gone to Bohemond at the outset. Yet, at only 40, he was younger than Raymond and lacked the wealth that he had. Alongside Bohemond was his 20-year-old nephew, Tancred of Hotville. Pay attention to Tancred. By the end of the First Crusade, he's going to emerge as one of the most important players. Another crusader, and by the way, I'm only giving you the ones I'm going to talk about, was Godfred of Bouillon. Godfred, thanks to a penchant for pillaging church property, had been an enemy of the Pope in the even very recent past. He led essentially the German contingent, though I'm getting a little loose with my terms there, but for ease, let's just go with it, and was accompanied by his brother. Baldwin of Boulogne. Each of these men signified their commitment to the cause in an elaborate ceremony. They would swear an oath to complete their journey, of course, because it's the Middle Ages and we love us some oaths, right? And then they would sew a cross onto their clothing as a sign that they had taken their crusading vows. It's an anachronistic term, I know, but I'm going to use it. The oaths were kind of necessary. We're talking about a serious journey here. Just getting to the Holy Land would have been a journey of over a thousand miles. And once they got there, these men had literally no idea what to expect, let's be honest. There was evidence that many of these crusaders were apprehensive about their journey. And that ignores the cost, by the way. It's not like the Pope was going to foot the bill for all this. These men were expected to pay their own way. And for many, that meant selling a significant amount of their assets. Let's just look at Robert of Normandy, who went along. He had to mortgage his entire dukedom to his brother. But before these men could even consider fighting an enemy they'd never seen and could barely even contemplate, first, they had to get through the Theodosian Walls. Because in their path to the Middle East lay the Eastern Empire, an empire that had, ostensibly, asked them to come. But Alexius at this point knows he's getting way more than he bargained for. 
And he was not about to allow 100,000 people to go tramping through the streets of his capital city. Around November of 1096, the first crusading armies started to arrive outside the walls of Constantinople. What Alexios must have thought at this point has been the subject of intense debate and speculation by actual historians. I couldn't even guess. But the closest I have been able to see in terms of consensus is that, broadly, Alexios probably viewed the arrival of the crusading factions with equal parts disdain and suspicion. That being said... What is interesting is how well these forces, at least at first, are going to work with his empire. Alexius offered the Frankish armies a cautious welcome. He wanted to make sure that he controlled exactly how these armies traversed his territory. After all, you now have a force the size of Alexander the Great's army moving through the heart of your empire. Should it turn on you, would you have any chance to stop it? Probably not. Nonetheless, Alexius must have recognized that they were here, so he might as well make the best of it. Throughout the first campaign, Alexius would provide the Crusaders with intelligence, aid, and supplies. He would also be more than willing to capitalize on their success. What most Crusaders expected, though, was that Alexius was going to raise his own forces, and then he would personally lead the combined armies to the very gates of Jerusalem. That he had absolutely no intention of doing. Should he die on campaign, his entire dynasty would be thrown into chaos. Furthermore, the crusader goal might have been Jerusalem, but Alexius' goal was the reconquest of Asia Minor. Jerusalem was a long way from the present borders of the empire and, quite frankly, offered absolutely no strategic advantage in his ongoing wars against the Turks. So, much to the Crusaders' chagrin, Alexius announced he's going to be staying at home for this one. Now, as I mentioned, in November of 1096, the first Crusading armies began to arrive. That is important. They did not arrive together. Recall that there was no overall commander at this point for the Crusade, so each leader just had to make his own way with his forces. This was a very advantageous situation for Alexius, because he could then deal with each of the crusading leaders individually. In January of 1097, Godfrey of Boulogne was the first to arrive. Alexius dealt with him as he would attempt to deal with each crusading leader. He had Godfrey brought into the imperial palace and just wowed him with the opulence and pageantry of the eastern court. He remained seated as Godfrey entered, seated high on his throne and making it clear who was in charge. With Godfrey appropriately in awe, Alexius sprung. He demanded that Godfrey swear an oath to him that any cities which he liberated from Muslim rule, which were originally part of the empire, so like everything, would be returned to the empire. Godfrey agreed. The two men then just swore traditional feudal oaths of fealty, which placed Godfrey under Alexios's control, but also would have guaranteed him protection and support. In the following months, virtually all of the leading crusaders followed suit. Only Raymond, the eldest and most powerful, 
refused to swear the oath. Ultimately, Raymond would swear only that he would not threaten Alexios's power or possessions. By February 1096, the crusading armies were ready to go. At that point, we believe their forces numbered around a total of 75,000, about 7,500 knights, and another 35,000 foot soldiers, so a combined fighting force of nearly 43,000 men. Interestingly, here the crusaders benefited from a piece of luck. The sultan, in control of the region, had earlier destroyed that little people's crusade with such ease that he assumed the second wave would be similar. Thus, as the crusading army was gathering and preparing to advance, he marched in the opposite direction to deal with an insurrection deep in the interior of Asia Minor. As a result, that spring the crusaders crossed the Bosphorus and moved into Asia Minor without meeting any resistance. It was a massive tactical blunder. Alexios' first goal for the Crusaders was to liberate the Byzantine city of Nicaea. Nicaea was, of course, also a famous city in Christian lore, having hosted scores of probably the most important synods over the centuries. So it probably made both strategic sense and fit with the image of the Crusades to capture it. Yet what the Crusaders saw when they reached Nicaea shocked them. The city was a veritable fortress. While the Turkish garrison itself numbered probably no more than a few thousand, the city is situated on a massive lake, which would make reinforcing this small group simple. Furthermore, the city itself was ringed with 30-foot-high walls, nearly three miles in circumference, and that incorporated more than 100 towers. Evidently, a well-defended city was not something the Crusaders had planned on. Regardless, the Crusaders settled in for a siege, but the whole enterprise was nearly over before it started. Having heard about the size of the force, the Turkish commander, who had gone east, returned with his army and launched a surprise attack on the Crusading forces. Luckily for them, they had recently captured a Turkish spy, who betrayed the whole plan to them. The Crusaders were then ready when the Turkish troops poured out of the woods and their sheer force of numbers pushed the Turkish troops back with significant casualties. The loss of prestige for the Turkish sultan, as well as the damage to the morale of the garrison inside the city, was significant. The Christians then tried to heighten the psychological impact by decapitating the cor corpses of the Turkish dead and parading the severed heads around the city walls. Now, to be fair, guys, this is just the first of many atrocities to count on both sides. So hang in there. It's going to get a lot, lot worse. Now, the Crusaders still had no way to encircle both the city and the lake. So they settled in for just a siege of the walls. At the same time, though, recognizing that this could probably never work on its own, the Crusaders also pursued active assault siege techniques. The main effort was to use light bombardment in order to screen their efforts to undermine the walls. Undermining is going to be a key Crusader strategy, so let's cover it. Undermining is essentially digging a mine underneath the walls themselves. 
As you dig, you use proper mining techniques to brace the mine as you proceed forward. Once the mine had been constructed over what you thought was a significant section of the wall, you then set the timbers of the mine on fire. As the wooden beams and braces burnt and broke, the mine would, hopefully, collapse. And when the mine collapsed, the idea was to create essentially a sinkhole into which the walls, or a chunk of the wall, would fall. On June 1st, 1097, this is exactly what the Crusaders tried. But the damage was not enough, though they did manage to bring down a small section of the wall. The garrison was able to repair the wall, and the Crusaders were stuck right back in the same place they started. So it fell to Alexios and the Byzantines to save the day. They dispatched military advisors. The most notable was a Greek named Tacitus, who allegedly has a golden nose to replace the flesh one cut off years earlier, and determined the best approach would be to attack the lesser defended walls on the other side of the lake. The Byzantine commander portaged a small fleet of ships about 20 miles overland and attacked from the west, while the crusading army, in a coordinated attack, assaulted the walls from the east. Within only hours, the Turkish garrison sued for peace. The Byzantines then took control of the city. Sadly, the siege of Nicaea, about three months after the Crusaders set foot on Asia, would prove to be the high watermark of Crusader-Byzantine cooperation. It's kind of all downhill from here. After the battle, Alexios held an audience with all the crusading leaders. All agreed that the next target needed to be Antioch. The crusaders would move out first, with the Byzantine advisor Tacitus in tow, with the imperial army following and mopping up whatever's left over. Again, if it worked out, it seemed like a really good deal for Alexius. Sadly, it's not going to work out the way that he had hoped. Next time, the Crusaders march on Antioch. If they thought that Nicaea looked like a tough nut to crack, then they must have been totally off guard by what lay ahead of them across Asia Minor.
Gott zu 